so we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. And this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible for understanding who Jesus is and really where history is headed. It shows us that Jesus is our hope in the midst of the chaos of our world right now and throughout the ages. Now, this is a very difficult year. Many people are thinking about what really matters in life. Many people in our culture, in our society, around the world, they're thinking about life and death. They're thinking about where to find meaning in life. And many are looking to see if Jesus and the Christian message have hope for our world, have hope for them, have hope for you. And this text in Daniel shows us that we do have great hope. It gives us perspective, a perspective on human history, where everything's heading. And it also shows us that Jesus is at the heart of it. So maybe you are new to seeking uh, Jesus and exploring the truth about him. Uh, You know, many people have started looking for answers this year. And many people, when they do start seeking answers about who Jesus is, they'll get to know true Christians. They'll come to a church that faithfully um, uh, is in God's Word to understand who God really is. And what can often happen is people become surprised because they realize the Jesus they're learning about from the Bible and from true Christians is worlds apart from the Jesus that they were presented through uh, cultural Um, common understandings of Jesus or through various uh, media representations of him, they realized they didn't actually know who the real Jesus was. They didn't even have the option to make up their mind about him because they they weren't presented with the real Jesus. And so we want to know the real Jesus. We want to hear what the hope is that he gives us in a year like this and in a world like ours and in a season like this, an election season like this. So when Jesus came... Do you know what title he used to refer to himself most often? Was son of man. He referred to himself that way over and over and over. And it's clear from what he said around that through him quoting and alluding to a text in the Old Testament that he had Daniel chapter 7 in mind for understanding who he was and presenting who he was. Daniel 7 shows us that the kingdoms of this world will be replaced by the kingdom of Jesus the Son of Man. This is part of what we Christians call the gospel, the good news that Jesus has brought into the world. This is the the good news is that the kingdom of God has arrived in history through Jesus. He's welcoming sinners to himself, and he's on his way to restore this broken creation, make all things new, set all wrongs to right. So we'll spend two weeks in this chapter I'm tempted to make it more. I already, even this morning, had a big section. It was kind of, you know, copy, paste somewhere else, delete from my notes today, uh, sadly. Um, But I want you guys to keep coming back so it can't be too long. Um, So just a warning, by the way, as we read this first half of Daniel 7, this is um, a vision, a symbolic vision. It feels like a strange new world that we're about to enter into. So Daniel chapter 7, let's pray. And then we'll read the first 14 verses. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, knowing that you welcome us because of him. You yourself had planned 
to send your son to die on the cross for us and rise again and welcome us into your presence through his blood. And so we're here. We're drawing near to you by your spirit's empowering. And we're here in this moment to listen to you speak to us through your word. So as we read Daniel 7, we believe that this is your word, living and active, powerful. And so we just want to hear from you. So give us understanding in this time of what you're saying here and how we might rightly respond and empower us to respond appropriately in the way that we think, how we feel, and how we act moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first beast, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's the message of this text. God will replace all of the beast-like kingdoms of this world, and he'll replace them with the kingdom of Jesus. We see two main scenes here. We see this sea with beasts 
and we see thrones with the Son of Man. So let's consider both of them here. First, the sea with beasts. I mean, what's going on here? This sounds very strange to us, right? And the key is recognizing that this is a dream. It is a vision. It is symbolic. We call this kind of writing that we're dealing with here apocalyptic literature. It was actually a specific genre of writing throughout 400 years or so, um, uh, a little bit longer too, and stretches in, in both uh, ways before and after Jesus. There's a lot of different writing in this ways, and so this is a very early example of this. It means it's a kind of writing with, filled with imaginative symbols, and it was a dream, which we should expect to be symbolic. And so, a lot of people think that the book of Daniel, really from chapter 7 we're reading to the rest of it, and the book of Revelation are literal descriptions of the future, right? As though this were a video ahead of time, right? So, we think of documentaries that use video from the past, that some people think this is like a, a documentary from the future, but this is symbolic, It's not a literal picture of what's going to happen in the future. Giant beasts are not actually going to be coming out of, at this time, probably the Mediterranean Sea is what was in mind there. Think of this like a political cartoon. Those are often very symbolic, right? Um, If you saw one, imagine even just right now, you know, election season, um, right, we know two main parties, Republican, Democrat, Democratic. We have a, an elephant and a donkey, right? We have colors. We have red and we have blue. So imagine if you saw a political cartoon and there was this giant red elephant fighting this giant blue donkey. And as they fought, the ground beneath them was, they were like on a map of our nation. And the ground beneath them was rumbling and then it was like, like an earthquake and there was a chasm split between them ripped right through that map that they're standing on. You would get the point. You wouldn't be thinking, wow, I wonder if there's going to be a giant red elephant and a giant blue donkey that are going to like rise up and start trampling our nation. No, you'd get the point. It's symbolic. Uh, it's a symbolic interpretation of, from many people's point of view, like what's happening right now, right? There's, there's this fighting and division that can split our nation apart, and we need to be, as, as Aaron led us in prayer, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. So that's how apocalyptic visions work. They're symbolic. They, we have to use our imagination, and this appeals to our imagination. And so, kids, you are better at this than many adults, right? using your imagination. And I encourage you to never lose that. Um, adults should get it back if you've lost it. We can learn from you, kids. And so, kids, by the way, if you're drawing what you're hearing, I would love to see your picture of this text um, at the end, what you draw. Um, I'd love to see it if you do that. So Daniel sees in his vision this sea churning um, and then these beasts rising out of them. Out of them. So this is a frightening image. In the ancient world, the sea was a symbol of chaos, right? It was a dark and mysterious and often deadly place. There weren't kind of like water sports and, and many beach vacations at that time. The, the sea was this place of dark chaos. I remember when I was about seven years old, um, my family had a boat up north on the Fox River, and my dad wanted to teach me to drive one day, but there wasn't like preparation, like, hey, this, this day I'm going to teach you how to drive. It was kind of like on the spot. I think a storm was coming, and my, and my memory here is just this gray skies. The water was incredibly choppy, high waves churning everywhere. The boat's already going incredibly fast, and then the wheel's just given to me. I don't know what I was doing. I was terrified. 
Um, and as we turned, I thought this thing was going to flip over. So the sea can be very frightening. And in the ancient world, it was a symbol of that kind of terror and, and frightening uh, place, a frightening place. A symbol of chaos. And so out of this sea, this terrifying place, come these beasts one after another. And this isn't like a cute puppy and a turtle and then a bunny, right? These are like mutant beasts. They're monstrous and they're terrifying. And again, this is symbolism. Later in this chapter, an angel tells Daniel that they represent kings and kingdoms. We've actually seen these four kingdoms before in this book. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, this great image that had a gold head and a silver midsection, then bronze, and then iron and clay mixed together. And that image was essentially a timeline, right? If you turn that on its side, you had Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and as that golden head. And then you move to another kingdom that's represented by silver and another bronze and another, another by the clay and iron. And so that's what's going on here. It's the same four kingdoms. And so the first is a lion that has eagle's wings. And then it's lifted up from the ground, and it's made to stand like a man, and it's given the mind of a man. That's Babylon. If you were here a few weeks ago, we saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, God made him go insane and act like a beast and actually live among the animals. It said that his hair was as long as eagle's feathers. So there's even the words are are being alluded to comparing these chapters, like this this lion-like with, with, with an eagle's wings. But then God restored his mind to him, gave him a mind of a man again, and Nebuchadnezzar was sane. And so that's this first beast. It's Babylon. Daniel's living within this beastly kingdom. The second beast is a bear. Verse 5 said it's lopsided. It says one side's raised up higher than another. That's probably the Medo-Persian Empire. This empire came to power after Babylon, and the Persian part of it was always stronger and more dominant than the Medes, the media portion of it. The third beast is a leopard with wings. So this is going to be an incredibly fast beast, right? Fast animal. It's probably Greece. Do you remember Alexander the Great? Um, Alexander the Great and the Greeks were who came to power after the Medo-Persian Empire. And he conquered the world incredibly fast. Um, by the time of his early 30s, he's like, there's, no, there's nothing left to conquer. And then the forced beast, beast is the most terrifying of all. In verse 7, it devours, it stamps out everything that's left. It's worse than the other empires. It's ruthless. It has ten horns and then one other horn, which is arrogant and boastful. This beast is a probably the Roman Empire, which came next. Now, it could be that this is actually the, um, the Greek Empire. There's some debate about this, uh, but it's p- probably the Roman Empire. And uh, in light of the debate, we can't be too certain, but either way, um, this really does lead up to the time that Jesus arrived because the, the Greek Empire still had remnants even in the time of Jesus till it was finally done, and the Roman Empire was surging in power at that time. So here's the question. Why would God give Daniel a vision with this imagery of a sea and beasts? Well, here's what it is. This is appealing to our imaginations to help us see through the powerful kingdoms of the world, to actually see something true about them that we wouldn't be able to discern as powerfully otherwise. This vision appeals to our imaginations, not to teach us falsehood, right? The imagination should not be associated with falsehood, but to teach us something true. 
Very often in history and among Christians, the imagination has been dismissed as unimportant, but it is incredibly important. Um, it took, I took a class in grad school called Theology and the Imagination, and it was so helpful for me to understand the important place that imagination serves in the world, that God has made us with an imagination. It's, it's what we use all the time to make connections between things, to see patterns between things, to see the big pictures of things. You actually need an imagination to comprehend the whole story of the Bible and not just see it as these diverse parts that aren't fit together, but you actually see the unity of it that's really there. And, and you see meaning in history, and you discern relational love between people. This is appeals to our imagination, so it helps us perceive truth in a powerful way. So God doesn't just say to Daniel, he doesn't just send an angel to say, Daniel, I want you to know that there will be four kingdoms, and they're going to be very, very mean. He could have done that, but this image terrifies him in, his, in the night, and it communicates something to him powerfully that he couldn't have gotten otherwise. That's really what the book of Revelation is doing as well. It's, it's apocalyptic literature. is about pulling back the veil to see behind reality, to see what's true about reality, about what we perceive with our senses, so that we can be encouraged and comforted by God's reign. Okay, so these kingdoms we see are beastly and terrifying and ruthless, and it's interesting that God chose animal-like beasts to portray this. That he'd associate these kingdoms with beasts because this recalls God's creation in Genesis 1. Remember who was supposed to rule? Well, it's God's kingdom, but he rules through humanity whom he set over the beasts, the animals, and the world. But because of sin, humans don't rule well. We abdicated our authority to the beast, the serpent who came in, and now we become less humane as we seek to rule, more beastly. We lead ruthlessly and selfishly. We become a complete distortion of God's original plan. Every one of us does this in the way that we seek to lead. There's always a taint of beast-like sin and a lack of humaneness in the way that we lead. Human history is filled with this kind of ruthlessness. When people get even more power and are over kingdoms, those kingdoms are brutal. I'm reading a book right now on the 1700s in America and the way that the French and the British and the Native Americans treated one another was brutal. I'll often uh, read history or fiction at night before bed, and I'll read out loud to Christina. She usually falls asleep after two pages. It helps her get to sleep, and I'll keep reading. I have to be selective with this one because no one wants to go to bed with some of the stuff that's in this book. Um, and it's just, this is just normal. And you read any history book of what's happening or what's happened throughout history, I mean, this is a brutal place, beastly place. And this imagery here helps us see through the power and the glamour and the wealth of nations. We can look at successful kingdoms and successful people in history and see that they are often like beasts. But this vision also gives us hope. God is in charge and he has a plan. So let's go to the next scene, the throne and the son of man. Verse nine, we'll just read this again together here. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The beasts rise up and rage here, but we see the Ancient of Days takes his seat, so God's not raging, right? He's calm. He sits on his throne, and then at the end of verse 10, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So here is God, portrayed with this powerful imagery of purity and wisdom and justice, seated on his throne, ready to judge. And then verse 11, the fourth beast is destroyed and the other beasts have their power taken away. And then someone else appears, verse 13. 
Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So after these four beastly kingdoms rule, an eternal kingdom will come. And that's what we see here. This is the kingdom of the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is described as a king who is, has both human and divine qualities. He's described like a human being. When Daniel sees him, he says it's one like a son of man. So he's looking, and he's like, looks like a son of man. It's a way of saying looks like a human being. But he's also described in divine terms. He rides on the cloud, clouds. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that's something that God alone does in this symbolic imagery of riding on a chariot. Um, with authority, and all nations are going to serve this king. The whole world is serving or worshiping this son of man. So who is this? Well, we see, we'll see next week that this son of man represents both a king and his kingdom. At the second half of this chapter, we see that this represents the saints of God, the people of God, but it's a king and a kingdom. So we'll focus this morning on the son of man as the king of his kingdom. When Jesus came, As I mentioned earlier, this was the most common self-designation for himself, um, son of man. He called himself this more than any other title. Dozens of times across the Gospels, uh, Gospel stories, we read this. So I want us to just walk through a a few key moments in the New Testament to see how Jesus brings the kingdom as the son of man. And we'll just learn this from Jesus himself. So he first used it in his ministry to draw attention to his authority as the Son of Man. So Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus is about to forgive and to heal a man who can't walk. And he does that miracle to healing him to show his authority. And so we'll have these behind me here. But that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man, he often refers to himself as the Son of Man, rather than just saying, but that you may know that I have authority. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. So he's intentionally giving himself this title in a somewhat awkward way, right? Um, to draw attention to this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says, rise up and walk. So he has divine authority to forgive sins. And then he used this title as a surprise to his disciples. He's the king, but he's going to suffer and die for his people. This is the great surprise. Mark 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He repeated that several times to his disciples, and they couldn't get it. It's hard to know even what they had in mind when he said the Son of Man, but they certainly were not expecting any kind of kingly figure or Jesus himself to suffer and die. And then here's how he put it in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, do you remember in Daniel 7, the Son of Man will rule and all people will serve Him. All people, all nations, all languages will serve Him. And here Jesus says that He he gives us surprise. He first comes to serve us by suffering and dying for us. That's how He brings us into His kingdom. 
And then as he comes to the cross, there's this incredible moment. In Mark chapter 4, verse 62, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial. He's soon going to be crucified. He's standing before the high priest, and the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Right, that's Daniel 7, right? Behold, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and being presented before the ancient of days to receive a kingdom and glory. So they're about to crucify him. And Jesus quotes from Daniel 7 to show that he's the king. He's in charge. All nations will serve him. What a surprise. And him even saying that he is the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven is what is kind of the final straw. The high priest says, that's it. What do you guys want to do to him? They say, crucify him, and it's over. So Jesus proclaims his authority, and that's what leads to them wanting to kill him. And then he's crucified, and it looks like the beast has crushed him. Jesus dies, and then his rise rises, and then after the resurrection, listen to what he says to his disciples. He gives them what we call the Great Commission. And he says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So now that he's the risen king, he's conquered. He's established his kingdom. So he's essentially saying to them, I am the son of man, as I've been saying. I laid down my life for people from every nation to be forgiven and enter into my kingdom. So now go to those nations and let them know the king's on his throne. Let them know they're welcome to come in. Go make disciples. That's what discipleship's about, coming under the gracious rule and authority of King Jesus, entering by grace. And so he sends the disciples to go spread the news of his kingdom. And aren't we glad that they did that? Because that message reverberated and rippled out throughout the globe. And then here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered together to serve the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man by the power of the Spirit. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he is ascended to heaven. And his ascension, when he ascended to heaven, that is his, in many ways, his coronation as king. It's another stage in him taking his place as the rightful king of creation now. And you know how the book of Acts describes it? If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably read about this, and you might remember what happened there when he's taken up. Acts 1.9 says it this way. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's probably not arbitrary. It's probably a reference to Jesus going up with the clouds to the Ancient of Days, a way of saying he's the Son of Man getting his authority and his kingdom here. And now we wait for his future return. And the, um, when it was said there in Acts 1-9 that he's taken away by the cloud, this angel um, person who is saying this to them um, says that you'll see him return just as he went away. In other words, you'll see him coming on the clouds. And so we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So here's the meaning of the vision. God gives this vision of four ruthless and prideful kingdoms, probably referring to Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. But these continue, as we'll see next week. Revelation talks about the empires of this world, Rome, and ongoing as beastly empires in many ways. But then in the time of that fourth beast, the Son of Man will come and establish his eternal kingdom. 
And so now we see this happened. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He came to establish a humane kingdom, a kingdom of grace and justice, not beastly arrogance. A king, and this kingdom began with Jesus' first arrival, his first coming, and it's spreading now as people come under his gracious authority. And yet the beasts rage on even now. Jesus' kingdom has dawned, but it's not yet fully here. It's spreading, but we're waiting for Jesus to return to fully establish this eternal kingdom. He'll finally calm the raging sea. So here's just a few ways for us to respond. First, let's worship and serve Jesus as the Son of Man. Daniel 7 says, And this Son of Man will receive this kingdom, and all nations will serve Him. So that's what we're here for. We're here to come under the gracious rule of Jesus and serve and worship Him. He's the only one who's ever ruled, not like a beast, but like the true human. Um, Truly humanely, as we were always meant to rule. When we as sinful humans get power, it's often not very good, is it? We all have this drive to set up our little kingdoms. Men and women seek to rule in their own home or workplace in abusive or manipulative ways. Maybe you've experienced that tyranny from a parent or from a spouse. Maybe you feel that in your own heart these days, these, these beastly tendencies coming out of you in the way you treat others. Many children seek to assert a beast-like dominance over one another in harmful ways. And all of us have this, some capacity like this to rule like a mutant beast. And Jesus has come and received the true dominion over the kingdoms of this world. He came to die first to, dis, to forgive us from all of this uh, sinful mess we've created. And he'll come again to establish his kingdom fully and forever in the new creation. And he'll rule as the true human in a truly humane way. So if you're exploring Christianity these days, if you're new to exploring who Jesus is, this is him. Uh, A mingling of great power and grace. A mingling of authority and gentleness. The best you've ever seen in a leader, he's better. The worst you've ever seen in a leader, he's the opposite of. He has a love for sinners and a resolve to set the world to rights one day. Second, let's allow this truth to give us this sense of deep calm in the midst of the storms of this life. Daniel was in the midst of the the rule of that first beast, Babylon. And this vision is probably part of what gave him such a calm peace in the midst of that kingdom. He looked ahead to the day that the Son of Man would come. And so now we live with even greater hope, because Jesus has come. He has begun his kingdom. We're part of his kingdom by faith. And we wait, though, like Daniel, for the fullness of his kingdom to come. And so we can do what Daniel did, right? We look out at the beasts of this world, the kingdoms of this world, the chaos around us, but then you remember what that vision does? And then I looked, and I saw thrones, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and the Son of Man received kingdom. This in, in light of the contrast, just the, the dark, chaotic churning of the beasts, there's this calm poise. The Lord sits. The Lord condemns the beasts. He takes away their dominion. He gives it to the Son of Man. And so when you feel anxious about this world and what's raging on around us, look to this vision. The Ancient of Days, seated on his throne, and the Son of Man taking his seat at the right hand of power on his throne. His kingdom will endure forever. 
So in this election season, we remember that we are first part of Christ's kingdom. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom before we're citizens of any other nation. Every nation that has risen has fallen. Every nation now that has risen will one day fall, but Jesus' kingdom will endure forever. And so finally, let's seek the good of whatever kingdom we are a part of, whatever nation we are a part of. It's what Christians are always called to do. We are exiles here, right, as we've been seeing in this series in Daniel. Daniel received this vision when he was part of this kingdom of the first beast, and yet God called him to seek the good of Babylon, to seek the good of that place. And so he served that kingdom with great character and moral fortitude. And so we're living in the midst of a worldly kingdom, and our nation is a mix like every nation. Some of our nation's values reflect the values of Jesus because of God's, what we call common grace, and so many of God's own people even serving. And yet there's also these beast-like tendencies, um, the inhumaneness, the way people treat each other and government leaders treat and policies are enacted. And so we are called then to seek the good of our nation. This means loving our neighbors, loving our literal neighbors, getting to know them, serving them, talking to them, caring for them in humane ways. This means repenting of our beast-like tendencies whenever whenever they rear their head in our homes and relationships and workplace in mind and heart. It means in the election, uh, using our vote, if you're able to vote, to contribute to the greatest common good of our nation. Now, that can be confusing exactly how to do that um, in different times, locally and nationally, but it's an opportunity we have to contribute uh, to seek the good and the flourishing of our nation. It means we pray for our government leaders and locally and nationally. It means some of us will seek to serve in public office, to contribute to human flourishing, to model what it looks like to reflect the rule of Jesus rather than the rule of a beast. And all the while, we do this knowing that we're part of a different kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And he calls us to, with great confidence and security in his kingdom by grace, just to reflect his rule where we are, inviting people to enter into his kingdom. And so one of the best ways that we can seek the good of others in this time is to tell them that a better kingdom has dawned. There is a king and his kingdom that is humane and and devoted to human flourishing. And that king's name is Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Even beast-like people like us through repentance and faith. And he forgives us and he begins to transform us into his own image. Image of how we were always meant to be. So in light of that... Let's thank the Lord for this, and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of this symbolic vision to help us see the truth of the world. So thank you that you wouldn't leave us in the dark, confused at the chaotic swirling around us in this world, but you help us understand the meaning of history and where everything's heading, that we could have this perspective, and the calm that comes from this perspective is such a gift, so thank you. We pray that you would help us and empower us to seek the good of our neighbors and the good of our nation and the good of the nations in going to share the good news of King Jesus. We pray that you'd empower us by the Spirit, surprise us with what you can do through us, do above and beyond anything we could even ask or think in this moment. Um, And we, we pray this with great dependence on you, needing your Spirit to be working through us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.